This is the Youth Worker Collective Podcast. We have your back with everything from games, lessons, and coaching. YouthworkerCollective.com. Welcome to the Youth Worker Collective Podcast. I'm Jeremy Steele, and I am joined by two uh, veteran youth workers, uh, and we are going to talk a little bit about the uh, protocol that was released on January 3rd that was a collaboration between a bunch of different leaders in the United Methodist Church denomination um, and uh, that helps hopefully maybe bring some resolution to uh, almost five decades long struggle around human sexuality. Um, If you are not a UMC person, you might want to pull out a dictionary. You may need that. Um, or just skip to the next podcast. But this one and the, the next one are, are going to be uh, kind of UMC specific. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm Jeremy. Um, Chris, will you introduce yourself, who you, who you are, where you're from? Absolutely. Hi, I am Chris Wilterdink. I live in Franklin, Tennessee, and I'm the director of Young People's Ministries. Uh, and that means I work for Discipleship Ministries of the United Methodist Church. And I get to uh, manage and resource those who serve youth and young adults worldwide in the United Methodist Church. Great. Claire? I am Claire Condry. I work in the Central Texas Conference for the United Methodist Church. I live in Fort Worth. And with my job, I get to plan youth ministry events that churches can decide if they want to participate in. And I work closely with a youth leadership team that designs those events. Great. So I'm just going to start out and give us a little bit of a lay of the land for what hap- what the protocol is. So basically, um, uh, a group of leaders of different caucuses and lobbying groups got together and uh, they contracted with a professional mediator and uh, and walked into a room and according to people in the room, um, he began and was saying... He began with saying, I've worked with people who are way farther apart than you guys are. So we're going to come to an agreement. And uh, that's what happened. Um, They worked on it for a while. And they outlined a protocol they have all agreed to. um, And that is not legislation. um, But it is going to be turned into legislation by the same people who have signed the protocol or a, a subset of them. Um, and that's a, just important um, to understand that there's not legislation, but these same people are the ones writing this legislation. So um, there is a, you know, a high probability that it will reflect the thing that they just spent all this time negotiating. Basically, the protocol outlines um, the creation of uh, a traditionalist uh, United Methodist uh, denomination that is not named specifically in there, but um, uh, Keith Boyette of the WCA said that in the room, everybody was assuming that would be the WCA. And the WCA intends to uh, file to be that organization as soon as that is allowed. So um, it, it creates a traditionalist denomination, and it gives that denomination $25 million uh, to begin and in exchange for that, that denomination won't make any other claims on all of the assets of the United Methodist Church. Um, once that this legislation happens, the, the protocol outlines a, a process by which uh, the United Methodist Church would have two bodies come out of it. 
um, in the traditionalist uh, denomination uh, and the the post-separation UMC. Uh, that happens uh, in really two ways primarily. Um, annual conferences, if an annual conference, if 20% of the annual conference wants to have a vote as to whether or not the entire annual conference goes into the traditionalist denomination, then they have to have the vote. So they'll discuss it and debate it. And that vote has to pass at the annual conference level by 57%. If that happens, all of those churches... Uh, will go with their assets will go into the traditionalist denomination. If a church, if an individual church does not um, want to go the way of their annual conference, either into the traditionalist denomination, if they vote as an annual conference to do so, or remain in the U.S., uh, the, the, the UMC, um, then they can have a vote on a church level that vote has to pass by two-thirds in order for an individual church to move, but the church will be given permission to move and to um, go into the traditionalist or to stay within the UMC. Uh, there's a provision in there uh, for other denominations that might choose to form as uh, at this moment. Um, people have, uh, there have been talks amongst people of possible other more traditionalist groups um, maybe other more progressive groups. Um, and each of those denominations will uh, receive $2 million to begin. Um, and it's the same process for leaving and joining those things. Uh, but the UMC basically stays intact in the sense that all of the things that we associate with the denomination generally don't go anywhere, are not divided. It is just the churches and their property that are at stake. And then there's these kind of payments to the to begin these denominations. Um, also in there is a recognition that there is um, a, uh, we have a, a historical problem with um, racism and uh, in the way that we deal with uh, minority groups. There is actually $39 million earmarked for ministries in that area, not specifically um, for uh, the denominations, but, uh, but for that ministry. So, um, so all of that's the basics of the protocol. Now, the, maybe the most interesting part of what is in this protocol is the fact that each of these people actually signed their name and said that they would abandon their existing legislation and would put their lobbying efforts behind the legislation that's created in accordance with this protocol, which is basically all of the lobbying. Right. There are obviously independent people, you know, a group that has a lot of group people in there. They don't necessarily have to vote the way their subgroup tells them. But uh, it is not a done deal. The legislation hasn't been written. General conference hasn't happened. But it's just about as close to a done deal as anything we've seen thus far. Um, and that's why I think a lot of the headlines 
in the news stories uh, were off base. They were off base for people in the Methodist Church who know what happens, but they were not technically off base because the Methodists, individual Methodists that were leaders of these groups, came to this agreement, though uh, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. So, um, uh, so the the way it happens from here, the legislation will be written. It will be at the the Council of Bishops will ask the Judicial Council, which is the Supreme Court of the UMC, to review it for constitutionality. Uh, probably edits will happen as a result of that ruling, if they do if they make that ruling, and. Um, and then there's a couple of different ways, we won't get into all that, but of, of how it can come to the floor general conference and be deliberated on and voted on at general conference in, oh, not in Minneapolis? Minnesota. Minnesota. Right. That is where Minneapolis is. Minneapolis, Minnesota. Yeah. I am an intelligent person. <laughs> it's the land of 10,000 lakes. <laughs> right. Uh, and so that happens in May of this year. And uh, those two votes, the votes by annual conferences and the votes by churches, have a deadline. So 2021 is the deadline for annual conferences. 2024 is the deadline for local churches. All right. Did I forget anything? No, but given the 10 minutes of background, like, right. obviously it is a complex yeah. issue that we're, the church has been wrestling with for a long time. Right. This is a complex, compromised proposed answer right and where it gets tricky for people that that might not be familiar with like the mechanisms of the united methodist church is basically there's one body that can officially speak on behalf of the united methodist church and make decisions that affect the whole united methodist church and that is the general conference that happens every four years right so this whole thing whatever whatever is being reported whatever people are hearing whatever people have signed on this protocol uh it is with the hope that the protocol in some form will be presented at general conference right. and then voted on by the delegates there right. so that then everything else that you outlined could be put into place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the other detail that I think might be worth hitting um, is that in the proposal, um, there is an option for uh, a church or an annual conference to not have any votes. Right. Um, if, the, if this proposal was passed, you would not be forced to vote one way or another. Right. However, if you don't, have a vote or your conference or your local church doesn't choose to have a vote, then the default is that you stay a part of the United Methodist Church that remains in place after whatever divisions end up happening. Right. Yeah. Right. So that happened (laughs) not very long ago. And these are very much first impressions. But, I mean, Claire, what what questions did you get? Like, I, I know, like, my text messages blew up. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, On my day off, for the record. Right. Yeah. <laughs> my, my own personal parents texted me first thing Saturday morning when they got their newspaper and mm-hmm. asked me what in the world is happening, right? Yeah. Um, but kind of as people are trying to settle into this a little bit more and try to process it and think about, okay, so if this does go forward, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the first question was, is this a done deal, right? right. Which... Of course, it is not, like you've explained. Yeah. Um, and I think that that gave people a little bit of a comfort, you mm-hmm. know, to know, okay, this is something that's being 
further investigated and to see if it's going to be something that's going to work and will be voted on, we're going to follow the process. Um, because to some lifelong United Methodists that really understand our process, I think when they saw it presented this way, mm-hmm. They almost felt like, well, wait a minute, did something change? Have we changed how we do <laughs> right. things, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Especially. Um, and, and the biggest question that I think um, some folks that I know are wrestling with is a confusion of why this would be appealing to churches or individuals that were leaning towards the traditionalist plan mm-hmm. um, based off of what we saw happen in 2019 right. um, is, is some con- confusion as to this feels kind of out of left field, right? right? Mm-hmm. So how do you answer that? Well, I think talking about the process, yeah. right, that this came out of right. is a big part of that answer is people came to that conversation not knowing what the mm-hmm. end result would be, right? Um, and I think that definitely speaks to how that process must have gone mm-hmm. um, if, if we do feel like, wow, we didn't expect that. Obviously, there were some very detailed, honest conversations, mm-hmm. and obviously people had to really give in ways that they weren't expecting to yeah. um, for us to have, have this presented to us. Yeah. Um, and I think, too, like, like, we've been fighting over this for right. 47 years, and I, I know people on all sides of mm-hmm. it, and to be honest, everybody's just done with fighting right you know like they they, the the argument and the time spent on this issue is time spent and energy spent not doing ministry the way Mm -hmm. we feel called to do on whoever you are and and i really do think that at least the people that i know people that i've talked to they said we need to we need to release each other to Mm-hmm. Do ministry the way we feel called to do it, and we can't do it together. Mm-hmm. And that's the sad part. I feel like, you know, for me, that's the point. But that those leaders came to, I get it. I, I understand. Right. But Chris, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about just uh, it, part of my role is I, I get to connect with churches in a ton of different places, mm-hmm. and you know, it is pretty fascinating to see you know depending on the city that you're in the number of methodist mm-hmm. churches that there already are mm-hmm. right so there's something that's you know oddly somewhere in our methodist connection that we're going to have a disagreement and we're going to start another church right like depending right. on the small town you're in you could walk out from one uh old yeah. methodist episcopal church and find a different methodist church across the corner and now they're both united methodist churches mm-hmm. and there's the potential for those churches now being Again, different mm-hmm. expressions of mm-hmm. the Methodist Church. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, honestly, it, it's confusing for people. I mm-hmm. think it's yeah. confusing for young people. Yes. Um, I think it's confusing for a lot of the folks who are not connected with the church mm-hmm. in any way. Um, mm-hmm. Because most organizations are not set up like the United Methodist Church is set right. up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, particularly in the U.S. right now, like we're used to somebody being a CEO or mm-hmm. a president mm-hmm. or, you know, like maybe there's a small board of directors and right. that's the group that makes these big kind of decisions and that's the way the process plays out. But we're much more similar to the way that the U.S. government is set up mm-hmm. with yep. these these different branches and these different representative bodies. Um, and it's, it's genuinely confusing for mm-hmm. people. 
Um, And I think will continue to be confusing because what we've seen to this point when we are recording this podcast is not the final version of what will actually be up for a vote in May in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Yeah, I I think the other other interesting thing to me has been in some of my conversations, uh, there's a lack of... uh, of general knowledge about the history of the United Methodist Church. Because, I mean, when you go, when you look back, like, the United Methodist Church was created in 1968, mm-hmm. right? So the Uniting Conference happened in 1968, and, you know, there were groups that came together. Like, but that, if you go back, we just, it's like, there's a long history. We, we've been in places like this over and over and over and over right. and over, right? Where, Either a big separation happens or a small group leaves or whatever. And there's a number of Methodist denominations in existence all over the world and in the United States that are a result of some argument over something that was resolved by... So the, there's it's not really alien to our history, mm-hmm. though, you know, 1968 was a while ago and a lot of people that have joined the Methodist Church have joined since then mm-hmm. and just don't don't have there's not that sort of organizational memory which I think is important because to reiterate like yes this is difficult but it's not something unique in history of Methodism right uh, no nor nor unique in the case of a lot of Protestant churches right mm-hmm. right like in, it, again in the US for mainstream denominations the United Methodist Church is like just about the last one of those to split right. over issues related mm-hmm. to homosexuality or human sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, Lutheran Church has gone through it. Presbyterian yep. Church has gone through it. Um, the way that uh, you know different uh, Baptist groups are organized, um, they didn't Episcopals. have. Yeah, the Episcopalian Church. Yeah, I mean it just. So it is not a foreign argument. It's not a foreign experience, and yet for you know young people right. uh, or people who care uh, are care for young people in their ministries. It raises so many questions about the future mm-hmm. right. of, you know, what am I putting my ministry energy into? Because those mm-hmm. are the questions I started getting. Like, mm-hmm. right. if I'm connected with people who are considering being in ministry in the United Methodist Church mm-hmm. or people running a confirmation class. Like, right. in, the, in the spring, you're going to ask young people to say their confirmation vows right. to join a church that may not exist as it is. Yeah. So, like, yeah. if you're taking those sort of things seriously. Absolutely. It's an odd time if you've got a confirmation service scheduled for somewhere before the end of May. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Ours will happen, you know, maybe a month ahead of this. Um, and, yeah, that's that's an interesting question to consider. You know, and I, the other thing that I got was uh, people who are upset about something that is not in it or is in it. Like, why do, like, a, I got a, a text from a more traditionalist person who said, well, why are, why are we the ones that are asking? Right. right? And then I got a, uh, a person who was more on the progressive side that said, well, why, why are we not holding them accountable for the way they're, they're treating like why? Why do we let them go and not ask them to conform? You know, mm-hmm. and like why are we giving money to an organization mm-hmm. that this is not going to whatever? So, you know, 
how do you respond to that? Like the people that are irritated at the, at the, what, what it actually is or isn't, you know? I, I, I don't know. Claire, I would love to hear your voice on it too, <laughs> right? Um, because my short answer um, probably has to do with stuff that I learned from my parents. Right. <laughs> and, and that is that like, you know, sometimes in a compromise, nobody's right. happy. Yeah. A, and, you know, this is a legitimate compromise. Right. Yeah. You know, that there is not one side or the other that is getting ev- everything that they want. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the different groups and the names that are on that protocol document, you know, each of them have given up significant portions yeah. of the things that they were aiming right. to get mm-hmm. to present this as an option. Um, it's for the delegates to wrestle with and feel right. like if it's a good compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in compromise, you got to end up giving up some things. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I would completely agree that it's nobody is going to um, walk away from general conference feeling Mm, yeah, you know, happy. It, we're, even if you feel like okay, that went exactly the way I personally feel, you're still going to be mourning mm-hmm. um, that we weren't all able to be on the same page. Right. Um, so, yeah, regrettably, that's that's just the case. Mm-hmm. And kind of personally, I remember leading up to. Um, the last general conference, I had a dream where um, a decision had been made for the United Methodist Church, and it was the way I felt it should be, mm-hmm. and it wasn't the way a coworker felt it should be. Mm-hmm. And in my dream, the coworker was packing up their office, and I went in very dramatically and said, "Can you not even just give it a minute?" And when I woke up, I st- mm-hmm. I felt very like, "Ah, yes," but then I realized. I see what you're telling me, God. Yeah. Like I was keeping myself in a place where I wouldn't give it a minute, right? Right. That I was so adamant that things needed to end up the way I personally felt like they needed to be that I wasn't mm-hmm. giving space for anybody else's opinion. Yeah. And so I would encourage those persons to try to take a step back mm-hmm. and allow for some of that space. Yeah. And I'd also remind them you still have a voice. Yeah. Nothing's been decided. You can still write your delegates. You can, you know, still reach out to your congregation members and talk about this in healthy and constructive ways. Right. And we're going to talk about how we deal with students specifically, mm-hmm. but but as youth workers, okay, you said that there you do have a voice. What specifically can a youth worker who is a member of a local United Methodist Church do just we're not going to say whether or not this is a good idea for their job, oh, but sure. <laughs> but just as a just as a member, like what can an average United Methodist Church member do okay. to influence the process? Right. Well, like we talked about, the you can write your delegates, and they're going to get a lot of letters. Who so, are they? Uh, How do you find that out? If you go, you should be able to go on your annual conference website, mm-hmm. and if you don't know who that is, you should just be able to Google your town and mm-hmm. put in United Methodist Conference, and it, right. it will tell you. Um, so you should be able to go to that website, and that information should be pretty easily available for you there. Okay. Um, but know that they're going to get a lot of letters, mm-hmm. right? Um, you can also talk to your church, see where your church is standing. Maybe it's not even something that you need to be all that concerned about. Um, I think that might be an aspect of it as well. And I think the biggest area of influence is trying to get everyone to as much as possible approach this from a non-anxious place. Mm -hmm. I think that is the way that we can actually have a positive effect, whatever it's going to be. Right. And so if we can turn our focus there, so if our congregation members whether we're just a fellow congregation member, and I don't mean just, but mm-hmm. or if we're a staff person, whatever our role is, um, if we can really turn our focus to trying to get people 
to handle this non-anxiously, non-judgmentally, um, I think that is our biggest opportunity for influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree completely. You know, that, that sort of non-anxious presence and non-anxious leadership is a big deal. Um, the ability to find out who your uh, delegation mm-hmm. is, the voting delegates that come from your annual conference, is publicly available mm-hmm. on each annual conference page, like you said. Um, so it takes a little bit of research to, to look up who that is. Yeah. Um, but that's what that connectional system is there for. Mm-hmm. And if you have concerns mm-hmm. um, or wishes or hopes or questions, um, you should be able to direct those to the delegation members or to mm-hmm. somebody that's... Uh, called the head of delegation, right, mm-hmm. which is kind of the point person for that annual conference's voting group. Right. Um, and that's a great place to uh, make your, your voice heard and express the things that you feel like deserve some voice and some mm-hmm. attention. Yeah. Uh, I would also say that when we talk about members of the church, I'm sure we'll hit this in the next episode mm-hmm. as well, but if a youth has gone through confirmation... They're a member of the church, and they may not have paid attention through all of confirmation, (laughs) uh, nor may they have, you know, attended a church council meeting Mm -hmm. or a Mm -hmm. church conference or any of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, But they have the ability and the right as members of the church to be present at those, to have voice um, at the local level, uh, and then connect with even even other connectional groups like the CCYM. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, CCYM stands for Conference Council on Youth Ministries. Right. Um, and that could be a group that could make a group statement. And what is the CCYM? What is the CCYM? The Conference Council? I know the, yeah, yeah. the acronym. Yeah. I mean, what is that? Yeah. Uh, so the CCYM is a elected group of a elected and elected oh. group. Yes. Didn't even catch that. I did. <laughs> uh, it is an elected group of young people. Do you people. want to shout out to some specific English teacher for that? <laughs> Holla at all of my undergrad English education <laughs> teachers that drilled that into me. I won't do it with the H words, though. I can't say an herb. No, I have weird. to say a herb. <laughs> Although both sound very odd. Um, anyways, the, the Conference Council on Youth Ministry is a group of people who are elected um, that serve different functions mm-hmm. at the conference level um, for the annual conference. Mm-hmm. So um, some of the CCYMs plan events. Some of them do uh, leadership development and create leadership retreats for other young people. Uh, but again, it's that representative idea. Mm-hmm. It is young people who are uh, serving in leadership positions and make themselves available um, as advocates for other young people and for issues and causes that they care about. Right. Well, I think we're going to stop there, and uh, we uh, have another podcast that will be coming out um, to go specifically into helping students process and deal with this, um, be active in this. So um, be on the lookout for that next episode. Be, I know that with stuff like this, like when you sit down, get online as a youth worker, you can feel really isolated, mm-hmm. um, not knowing, especially with, with being on staff and that adds a professional dynamic and a, your paycheck dynamic to this. Um, it can feel isolating alone and we don't want you to feel that way. That's why we have the youth worker collective. Uh, we want to be your first source for, uh, ideas, lessons, um, coaching and, and all of that is available at youthworkercollective.com. And you can find out uh, more there and get more podcasts like this one at youthworkercollective.com slash podcast.